You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekdays at 9 and 11 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Election Eve special coverage on NPR News. Coming up, the voters and the candidates, the campaigns and the issues, three hours of political coverage on this day before the election. You can also send in your questions about voting. More on that in a minute. And as we talk politics, campaigns and candidates today, I want to hear from you. Did you vote? Will you vote with a sense of obligation are you voting to send a message? Are, is it with a sense of genuine optimism? And millennials, I especially want to hear from you. Are you sending a message? Are you, are you voting with a sense of optimism and change? Here's the phone number, 651-227-6000, on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. And Steph Curtis is hanging out with me this morning. You've got the live blog going, and that's great. We've got the live blog going. All you have to do is go to mprnews.org, and it's at the top, and it's called Pre-Election Cram Session. We want to hear from you on voting, why you're voting, how you're voting, have you voted earlier. Millennials, fill those phone lines, too. 651-227-6000, But we begin, as we do on most Mondays, with the political junkie Ken Rudin. Ken, is Election Day finally almost here? I can't believe it. We've been talking about this for what seems like years and years. Welcome. Right. And re- remember, once tomorrow is over, uh, the 2020 campaign <laughs> Don't begins, tell me that. So, Don't tell me that. No, it, it never ends. I am focused ends. on the midterm. Okay, I, I want to talk about the importance of the Midwest here in control of the House and the Senate and a majority of governor's va- races. So, Ken, when you look at Minnesota and you look at the larger Midwest and, and you think about who's going to hold the gavel in January in the House – where do you see the Midwest fitting into that? Well, you know, for the most part, the Midwest is the site of some crucial, crucial Senate races, and that's Missouri and Indiana and, uh, and um, you know, North Dakota, certainly, uh, in, the, in the Plains. I mean, those are uh, all three states with vulnerable Democratic senators, incumbents, who were elected, you know, they either they were elected in 2006 and again in 2012, but in very good Democratic years. Uh, you know, and now, and of course, now they're running in states overwhelmingly won by Donald Trump, and they are in jeopardy. I think Heidi Heitkamp, Claire McCaskill, uh, and Joe Donnelly in Indiana, the three of them are clearly, clearly very vulnerable. But that's all, but, but also there's a different kind of electorate in the races for the House, whereas, of course, in North Dakota, ruby red state, uh, uh, Indiana, ruby red state, um, states like that. There are many congressional districts in the suburbs where suburban women are, are not thrilled with Donald Trump. There, there are many Republican women are talking about voting Democratic, even though they are registered with the GOP. So there's a lot of different. It sounds schizophrenic, uh, but it really isn't because there's a different kind of electorate uh, involved in Senate and House races. And Minnesota, speaking of schizophrenia, I mean, we, it's very possible uh, that uh, the Minnesota could not only defeat two Republican incumbents, but the Republicans could also pick up one or two House seats as well. I know. Isn't this Uh, weird, Ken? 
I mean, th- this it is, is this absolutely. is why I ask you about this because there are states in the Midwest, including here in Minnesota. You know, Minnesota almost went for Donald Trump. That are now we're seeing forces against the president and forces for the president in at battle within the borders of a state. I'm trying to think of another. Is that happening in Wisconsin or how unique is that for Minnesota? I now this is interesting. I mean, I haven't I haven't gone race by race by race in the House in in a couple of weeks. But Minnesota eight, for example, up in the Iron Range where Rick Nolan is retiring it's 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 first of all one I see it as almost certainly to go Republican and I think that is the most vulnerable district in the country, given the fact that it's coming in a state where that has not voted for a Republican for president since 1972. I forget the guy's name. Oh yeah, it was Nixon. Uh, but anyway, no. But I mean, Minnesota has gone longer than any other state without voting for a Republican for president in a, in a in a year when the president, the current president, Donald Trump's numbers hover between 40 and 45% approval, and yet Republicans could pick up a seat there as well as the first district. Uh, I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but the point is that where Tim Walz is running for governor, but the fact is is that you know even though the people are talking about blue waves and a great Democratic night, it could be not bad night for the Republicans in Minnesota And as Minnesota well. could be a part of that. I mean, that that's what's interesting about what's just happening in these races. Let me grab a call. Ken, you know what I'm asking people. I, I'm I'm interested in whether they are voting with a sense of optimism. Is it to send a message? Is it about change? Let me go to Kyle in Moorhead. Kyle, you heard my call out for millennials. Thanks for responding. How are you today? Hey, I'm great. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you. Good to have you. Uh, I've always voted very optimistically. Uh, You know, green candidates, uh, independent, kind of for the things I want uh, the country and society to be. Uh, but this time I'm going to be voting uh, straight Democrat. Why is that? Uh, just as a as a way to uh, steer the ship uh, in a little more sane direction than it's been lately. Good to have the call, Kyle. Ken, I wonder, and we saw this in presidential races and we see this sometimes in Senate races where some voters drift into the third uh, candidate parties and uh, third party candidates and then find themselves, I don't know, having a greater influence, right? Some third party candidate gets 2% and the race is close. And that has a that has an impact on one or either of the main party candidates. Well, what do you see happening with that this year? Well, let me point out that uh, you make a very good point. A third party candidate doesn't have to have much much of a percentage or much of a, a vote to make a difference. Of course, the big example is Ralph Nader in 2000 in Florida. He only got 1.9% of the of the vote. But given the fact that he, that means like 63,000 votes total, it kept Al Gore from winning the state by, what, was it 435 votes or something like that? So even a third-party candidate could make, make a big difference. But you know something? Um, we're talking about, uh, Your original question was, are you voting optimistically more and more people I've spoken to, and maybe it's because of where I live in the country, or maybe it's because of the people I know, but for the most part, there is not optimism. There's fear. There's the fact that there's a lot of appeals to fear and prejudice and, and I, I dare say, hatred in many of the pre-election appeals. We've seen it before. Look, I remember, I mean, I've seen it. I remember reading years ago that Harry Truman was calling uh, Thomas Dewey a fascist, 
in some of the commercials. <laughs> I mean, he, I don't think he said it personally, but it was in the air. I said, wow, I mean, that's pretty strong stuff. But for the most part, you don't see it going the way it is now. But when you have the, the uh, a gubernatorial candidate in Georgia talking about this left-wing mob that's trying to hack the elections, that, that many people in North Dakota can't vote because of a new law that keeps them from voting because they don't have they only have a post office box address. There is more and more t- intimidation being made. I mean, we've seen this for a while, but I think it's worse than ever. Uh, intimidation and uh, and even voter suppression against people who may not vote the same way as those in power. And so, whether whether Carl is talking about voting with optimism or not, I'm seeing fewer and fewer signs of optimism with one day to go. Ken, I'm going to recommend everyone read Philip Rucker's piece on the front page of the Washington Post. I think it really speaks to what you're bringing up here. Steph Curtis is in the studio with me today, running the live blog. What are we hearing, Steph? (laughs) Uh, N.D. wrote in and says, anxiety and worry kept me up until 2 a.m. Sunday morning. The 2016 election was so distressing that a part of me is terrified that it could happen again. I've given many contributions to, to support candidates, and I voted. Now I'm biting my nails and waiting so much as riding on this election. Please, please vote. And the and the address of the live blog, where do we oh, find it? Oh, you can it? find it right on the homepage, nprnews.org. Right. Uh, to Jeff in Alexandria. Hi, Jeff. How are you thinking about this? Good to have the call. Well, I, I voted already, but I'm not voting with any sense of optimism, no. Why? Uh, I, well, because, uh, you know, there's been a corporate takeover of America you know, what you talk about on NPR and this drama about the election is so much about nothing, really. I mean, just one scenario. Let's imagine Hillary Clinton won the presidency. Do you think that her defense budget would have varied from Trump's by point zero zero one? I don't. Uh, so, wait, that's so, Jeff, a reflection. The, that's the, a reflection. You're, I think you're making a, a, a good larger point here, and I want to bring Ken in on this. Jeff is basically saying the government runs as the government runs. And yes, there might be small differences in the way the president administers the government, but there's really not that big of a difference. Ken, what would you say to that? Well, look, I mean, one example you could say is, you know, that Hillary Clinton would not have picked Neil Gorsuch or, or Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. I mean, you know that that not would that's not uh, would, would have happened. You know that Hillary Clinton would not have put women's reproductive rights in jeopardy with a more conservative court. But having said that. Jeff does make point. Look, Hillary Clinton was not was anything but a dove. She voted. We, we all remember that she voted for the uh, the uh, incursion into Iraq and over the the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. So for all the talk about this, there's, you know, when George Wallace used to say, "There's not a dime's worth difference." In many ways, there isn't a difference, but in, in but in other substantial reasons, again, the courts, uh, health care. Uh, 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 Pre, pre, pre-existing conditions, uh, talking about a mob coming in from Mexico, you know that at, at the minimum, the rhetoric would not have been the same. But at the same time, I do understand there are a lot of people like Jeff who said there isn't much of a difference. And, our, and, and, and ultimately, when, when we wake up Wednesday morning, if the Democrats win control of the House and the Republicans add to the majority in the Senate, mm. What changes? Yeah. And so in many ways, maybe I, nothing. Changes. I, I, I don't want to I don't want to send that message out there, Ken, you know, because I, I it's important to be involved in this, to be engaged as a citizen. Right. 
And I don't want to leave oh, it with completely. what changes. It doesn't matter. Everything's still oh, gridlocked. No, it you know, oh, it no, does it matter. matters tremendously. And even if even if it's, you know, just I just want everybody to vote. I mean, just, you know, and, and you don't get the results you want. Well, you know, that that's democracy for you. But to, to sit back and say my vote doesn't count because it's going to be hacked or it's going to be suppressed or because the Russians are doing, you know, doing something to the system. A lot of people feel that way, and uh, and that is a very frightening uh, f- f- sense that democracy no longer is effective. Chris says on Twitter, Gen Xer here, voting, yes, optimistic, no, we haven't hit bottom yet, so just doing what I can. Mark says, it's midnight in America again. Is this feeling great to you? Jessica says, 34-year-old millennial voting tomorrow out of obligation, also hope for positive change, correction on gender, race, environmental issues, was once a libertarian, now voting for Democrats. Off the live blog, Steph. Rachel says, I recently moved from Minnesota to Minnesota from North Dakota, and I feel optimistic voting in a state where the candidates I vote for may actually win. Call here from Anthony in St. Paul. Hey, Anthony, hi. Thanks for waiting. Yeah, no problem. And uh, to your point about optimism, yeah. Uh, I think it's really difficult to have a sense of optimism when, in a real sense, you know, if you live in a heavily democratic city uh, with things being gerrymandered in the way things are, uh, the vote, you know, in a literal sense doesn't count. You know, we have a president that won with a fewer percentage of the votes than Hillary. So uh, it's it's hard to defend a democracy where the person that gets the least amount of votes wins. Or, you know, when you look at states like Texas and they, they carve up the democratic districts to make them inconsequential. So when you take a look at the map as a whole, it it doesn't give me a sense of optimism. All right. Anthony, you brought up a really important point. Ken, I wanted to bring this to you, the gerrymandering. I also want to say that look at Pennsylvania. If you think Republicans are the only ones who game the gerrymandered system, look at what may happen in Pennsylvania today. We should talk about that. Well, it's not because of what the Democrats are doing. It's because the Republicans gerrymandered the state in such a way after 2010 when they, the Republicans took over the legislature. The courts were called to come in because of the – look, the, the fact is the history of uh, partisan gerrymandering, uh, a redistricting of congressional districts, that has always been the case. Whoever has the power, when the Democrats were in control of state legislatures in the 70s and 80s, it was the Democrats who wrote, drew Republicans out of existence, drew Republicans against against each other. Uh, the Republicans are not doing something new. They're probably doing it to an art form that's never been seen before. But anyway, but to the, the bigger point here, for all our focus on the House and Senate, and that is enormous, we cannot forget how important it is for, in the races for governor around the country. Ohio is is very, very close. Florida is very, very close. It's the governors and the state legislatures that draw the congressional exactly. lines, districts after the uh, uh, you know the ten year census after twenty twenty. So sure, let's focus on the House and Senate, and that's important. But gubernatorial races are extremely important, especially in the drawing of congressional districts. I, I have to ask you about one congressional district that that I think is really interesting, and I think we may have a sense of what kind of a night it's going to be because the Virginia polls close. What is it? Six our time, seven your time. Ken, do you know? Uh, yeah, Virginia, Virginia is 7 o'clock Eastern, 6 o'clock okay, Central. So, yes. so House District 7, this is incumbent Republican Dave Bratt looking like he's in some trouble, more than I think the Republican Party expected. Is that for you one of those bellwether districts to have a sense about how this is going to go? 
Well, Bellwether to me is a district that can go either way. To me, it's never been a Bellwether district. This was the district that Eric Cantor, right. long held by the held by the, the then the House Majority Leader, but Dave Brad took Republican and conservative um, anger out on on Eric Cantor, shocked him in the primaries. I guess it was in. I don't know if it was in 2014 or whenever it was, but it was a big shocker. The fact that Dave Bratt in an overwhelmingly Republican district is in trouble. I mean, first of all, let's go back to 2017. Well, that's kind of why Democrats... I'm saying bellwether, Ken. I mean, the fact that well, the, right, exactly. yeah, that he's in trouble may tell you what's happening with Democrats in some of these other districts. But go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say in 2017 in Virginia, um, uh, you know, there was a, a wipeout for the for the Democrats in 2017. The governor, all statewide races, big gains in the state legislature. And people said, well, we are so angry at Donald Trump. Look what's happening in Virginia. But if you also look at congressional districts, the key close races in the past couple of weeks, Republican enthusiasm has is is, is increased. And the Republican, the, the generic Democratic lead of a couple of weeks ago has narrowed. So for all the, you know, you could say the, the polls say, well, 50 percent want re- uh, Democrats and only 42 percent want Republicans. But in the key bellwether tight races, congressional races around the country, Republican momentum, momentum is surging. Democrats are worrying more and more. And this blue wave that we were talking about a month or two ago may not materialize on Tuesday night. I still think the Democrats win the House, but if they do, maybe it'll be by three, four, five seats and not a blue wave that we were talking about not long ago. Ken, will know all next Monday when we chat. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks, Carrie. The political junkie Ken Rudin with us, as he is on most Mondays. This was a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. To add your voice to our discussion, you can call in at 800-242-2828 or tweet Carrie at K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. And if you miss us live, you'll find all of our shows by subscribing to this podcast. If you have questions, you can email us at talk at npr.org.